God is moving more powerfully among my people today than at any other time in human history. And this is a, so this is a great time to be engaged in Jewish evangelism, discipleship, training of pastors, and, and equipping them. And this is what the ministry of the Joshua Fund does. Now, how did the Joshua Fund come about? Do you know what it means to fulfill the Great Commission? Using every tool at your disposal to reach out to the unsaved, especially those in Israel and her neighbors. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and today we want to present Joel Rosenberg as he shares his story, how his parents met Jesus, and what God is doing in Israel and the Epicenter region of how God is using this work to transform lives and open doors to kings and princes in the Middle East. So it's an honor, and it was a real honor to have uh, Tim and Rick uh, be with us in Egypt. Uh, Later in this presentation, I'll I'll unpack a little bit of what God has been doing to open these doors that uh, are really unprecedented in many ways, certainly in my life, but in most of these countries, We have been the first delegations of evangelical Christian leaders that these countries have ever invited to come and sit with their most senior leadership. And uh, these are all Sunni Arab Muslim countries. These are not countries that have uh, historically a warm uh, relationship with evangelical Christians or with Christians at all. So uh, it's been extraordinary, the doors that have opened, and I'd, I'd love to share some of those stories about how they happened and what's been happening now, what is the Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur means Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is a day specified in the Scriptures, in the Torah, in the law, that we come to God and we plead with Him for forgiveness, for atonement, for all of our sins, for the year. And then we have to do that again next year and the next year. That's according to the Mosaic law. Now, the challenge, of course, is you need a temple, to do this. I mean, you didn't before the temple, the first temple was built, but once the temple was instituted, you couldn't get atonement. You couldn't get forgiveness of your sins unless you went to the temple and you went through the exact precise plan that God had laid out in the scriptures to get atonement by bringing a perfect sacrifice, a perfect lamb to cover your sins, right? Uh, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no atonement. So how do 17 million Jews get atonement, no matter how earnestly they pray for it, if there's no temple? And the answer is they don't. Without the sacrifice of the Messiah's blood, there is no atonement. Now, what's interesting is that in the book of Daniel, Daniel tells us specifically that the Messiah will come, that he will bring atonement, but in so doing, he will be cut off. The rabbis didn't understand what that meant at that time, but the Messiah will somehow be cut off. Something bad happens to him. And all that happens before, Daniel writes, before the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is sacked. Now we know when that happened. We know it happened in 70 AD with the Romans who destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. So that tells us, not from the New Testament, but from Daniel, the Hebrew prophet, that the Messiah had to have come before 70 AD. If you look at the prophet Micah, we know specifically where the Messiah is going to be born. 
right? He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And not just any Bethlehem, not here. I'm sorry, (laughs) right? If it just said Bethlehem, you'd be, cool, the Messiah could be coming from here. How exciting is that? No, you're named Bethlehem Baptist Church because of the Bethlehem in the Bible. And the Bethlehem in Micah is Bethlehem Ephrata in Judea. There was actually, you know, you can't go to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania and get a Messiah. No, no, you can't be here. There was a Bethlehem in the north part of Israel in ancient times. Can't be that one. It's a very specific Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrata in Judea. That's the one just outside of Jerusalem, five minutes outside. I live within sight of Bethlehem. The, the original. Not saying that they're doing as good a job in Bethlehem as you all are in understanding and preaching the gospel, but anyway, that's the original. That's where the Messiah had to come. We know this, and we know he had to come before 70 AD. Now, that's it. we haven't even said anything about dying, rising again. Just those two facts should tell us something. That little tiny town of Bethlehem, it's like, do you know anybody just spitballing anybody might come to mind from that little town that was somehow cut off, something bad happened to them, that seemed to have a claim to messiahship before 70 AD. Just anybody, just spit it out, right? right? But our team, my team, the Jewish team, does not see it, does not see it. And that's painful. I, I say that messianic prophecy is like a phone call, okay? In, in a sense, it's like a phone call. When you dial a phone number, it's almost miraculously that you get somebody, right? There's 7 billion plus people on the planet, but if you dial 1703, I'm not going to give you the rest of the numbers, but uh, you'll, you'll get me. How does that happen? And, and what if I'm not living in Virginia? Because I moved to Israel. We are dual U.S. Israeli citizens. We're, we're citizens of both countries. It means we get to vote twice. It's like living in Chicago, uh, you know, so... <laughs> uh, and you don't even have to be dead. So it's something to, you know, FYI. But uh, what's interesting to me about all this is that it can find me anywhere on the planet. And if, but by dialing 1703, immediately the computers are weeding out information, weeding out options. 703 tells you that you're in Virginia, even if I'm not. But the phone number drives you to Virginia. And not just Virginia, Northern Virginia. And as it goes, every digit is weeding out options, weeding out options, eliminating options. So when you dial that last number... You get me. Now, you're not actually going to get me because it's almost always going to voicemail because I don't use this phone mostly. I've got an Israeli phone. But the point is, uh, that's what Messianic prophecy does. It eliminates options. I'm looking for a male who was born as a baby. Isaiah chapter 9, right? We're not just looking for a Messiah to come out of the sky. That's the second time. The first time, he, uh, for unto us a child is born. Uh, for unto us a son is given. It's gonna become, he's going to come as a baby. He's going to come as a male baby. Well, that eliminates half the population. Okay. He's going to come to Bethlehem. Not just any Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Ephrata, Judea. Okay. He has to come before 70 AD. Okay. And as you do that, you eliminate options until you get to Yeshua, until you get to Jesus of Nazareth. Now, my father was raised Orthodox Jewish. His Orthodox Jewish family, on both sides of his family, escaped out of Russia during the early years of the 20th century when, under the Tsar, horrific, horrific persecution of the Jews was underway, known as pogroms. 60,000 Jews were murdered during this time by Russians. Uh, many more were raped, beaten, their, their homes were burned, their possessions stolen from them. And if you lived as an Orthodox Jew in 1906 in 
we, we, our family was from Belarus, white Russia, a city called Minsk. If you lived in Minsk during the time of the czar, as an Orthodox Jew, you had two options. You could fiddle on the roof, or you could get out, okay? Uh, now, my family decided to get out, and they got out by hiding in a hay wagon that was crossing a border. We think into Poland. Czarist soldiers took their swords, plunged them into the hay to see if anyone was in there. By God's grace, nobody was injured, and none of the children, of which there were quite a few in that hay wagon, uh, none of them sneezed, none of them made a sound, nobody coughed, nobody said, are we there yet? I gotta go to the bathroom. They got out, and having gotten out of anti-Semitic, fascist, czarist Russia, they could have settled in Central and Eastern Europe thinking, okay, we're free, we're safe. Many Jews did this, and they wound up in the Holocaust. By God's grace, by his sovereignty, God moved my unsaved Orthodox Jewish family across Europe, put them on a steamship, got them to the United States, and they set up shop in Brooklyn, just like any good Jewish family. That's, where, that's how it's done. And that's where my father was born as a first-generation American. That's where his brother was born, first-generation American. Now, not going into my whole testimony or his, but, but he eventually rebelled against Orthodox Judaism for lots of reasons. And he eventually became an architect, and he moved into Syracuse, New York, where he met the woman who would be his wife, eventually my mother. She was a, a, a renegade rebel Methodist. Uh, if you go back in her family, she had circuit riding, gospel preaching, Methodist missionaries in the family, but the, by the time it got to her, she didn't know what she believed. She was an agnostic. My father was an agnostic Orthodox Jew. 1965, they met and married. 1967, they had me, and they didn't know what they believed. But they did come to faith in Jesus as Messiah in 1973. Tonight is not the night to go through all of it, unless I guess you could ask her during the question and answer period. But I will say that for my mom, it was coming back to her roots that she just didn't understand. Nobody had explained to her that you have to be born again and that you can be. For my father, he had never heard the gospel. The way he heard the name Jesus Christ is because his father would beat him with a belt and say, Jesus Christ Almighty, while he was being beaten. That's how my father heard the name of Jesus. Not exactly the way you'd encourage evangelism to Jewish people. It's a miracle. It's a miracle any of us get saved. It's a miracle that an Orthodox Jew gets saved. When my grandmother, my Orthodox Jewish grandmother, would walk down the street in Brooklyn, when she'd come to a church, she would spit on the sidewalk and cross the street and keep moving. To her, Christianity represented the czar, and Russian Orthodox Christianity, and that represented the deepest possible hatred of Jewish people, and she didn't want anything to do with it. My father, as an agnostic, decided, yes, okay, honey, now that you've become a follower of Jesus, I'm Jewish, I don't believe that, but sure, you should know the basic plot line of Christianity, like you, know, like you should know the basics of Shakespeare, so sure, I'll go to a small group Bible study with some young couples, I'll go through the book of Luke, just, you know, worth knowing the basics, you know, do a little uh, basic Cliff Notes version, sure. When he read through Luke, six months later, he became a follower of Jesus. He, it, God just opened his eyes, opened his heart. He thought in 1973 that he was the first Jewish person since the Apostle Paul who <laughs> believed this. He had never heard of a Jewish person that believed that Jesus is the Messiah. He certainly had never met one. And in 1973, there weren't that many. Now, I came to faith in Jesus a few years later. I was born in 67, and I was probably about eight years old when I came to faith. And I believe it was sincere at that time, but it took a while for me to understand a lot more of what was going on. 
But when I was born in 1967, the best research we've been able to do suggests that there were fewer than 2,000 Jewish people on the entire planet Earth that believed that Jesus was the Messiah in 1967. Thank you. Fewer than 2,000 Jewish people in the entire world who believe that Jesus is the Messiah in 1967. Now, uh, a recent study that our nonprofit ministry uh, called the Joshua Fund, it's like a venture capital firm investing in ministries in Israel and the Palestinian territories and five neighboring Arab countries, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt. And also we invest in ministry that educates the uh, churches and Christians around the world about God's heart and his plan for Israel and her neighbors. We invested in a, in a study that the Southern Baptist Lifeway Research did, and they found uh, something that was stunning. As of last year, there were 871,000, 871,000 evangelicals with a Jewish heritage, meaning they have Jewish parents or grandparents. That's extraordinary. In, in, in just 52 years, we've gone from maybe 2,000 Jews believing in Jesus on the planet to almost 900,000 just in the United States alone. And when you add up those that live in other countries, we're roughly a million Jewish people tonight as we honor, we observe Yom Kippur, there are a million Jewish people who know that Jesus is their atonement, that there is no atonement outside of Jesus, that not only did the Messiah come before 78 AD, but that was God's plan. He would not remove the temple and the only way to get atonement until he sent a Messiah, the Messiah, that would provide atonement, that would create the new covenant, which was a new way to be forgiven and a new way to enter into a personal relationship with God. So God would never have sent uh, or never uh, allowed the enemies of, uh, of Israel to destroy the temple before the Messiah came. And that's what Daniel tells us. And that's what happened. Jesus himself said, you see these buildings? You see all those stones? They're not, you know, you, you, don't, you are re- you rejecting me and judgment is going to come. The, the, the temple will be destroyed. But again, he didn't, he, God didn't let that happen until the, the Messiah had brought the new covenant, a new way of atonement. And, and this, for this, we're very grateful. But it is exciting to me, very exciting as a Jewish follower of Jesus, that so many of my compadres are, are coming into the kingdom. It's like the curtain is finally going up after 2,000 years, 2,000 years of almost no Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus. I mean, obviously a lot in the first century. We see that in the scriptures, obviously in the gospels, but even more in Acts. But after that, if, you know, I, I joke that if this was a company Jew.com, Jewish Evangelism Works, that was the name of your company, and it had been operating for 2,000 years. If you went to CNBC and you did a, a stock graph on, on their impact and thus their, their, their stock price, you, know, you would have seen a couple blips early on in the first century, and then it would have flatlined near zero for the next 2,000 years. But if you zoom in to the last, you know, to your stock market charts of the last 15 years, the last 10 years, the last five years, you would see this extraordinary spike. This is the moment. This is the moment that we should be, we should have been, the church should have been doing a good job at praying and loving and, and preaching the gospel to Jewish people all throughout history. It has nothing to do with whether you see fruit or not. It's obedience. It's Romans 1.16 that we are not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the mission. But the church has not done a good job at it. 
for 2,000 years. And yet God is moving more powerfully among my people today than at any other time in human history. And this is a, so this is a great time to be engaged in Jewish evangelism, discipleship, training of pastors, and, and equipping them. And this is what the ministry of the Joshua Fund does. Now, how did the Joshua Fund come about? I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. That's lifeaudio.com. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ. Our verse of the day today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. Because a great door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Our prayer request today are pray that God continues to open doors of opportunity to reach out to the unsaved in the Middle East and Israel. And second, pray that every seed of the word planted in the epicenter will bring forth fruit. Well, the Joshua Fund came about because I was writing novels. I'm a failed political consultant. That's how I met Rick. I was helping Steve Forbes lose two presidential campaigns and about $70 million of the inheritance money of his five daughters. That's, that was our, our track record there. And I and actually, but, but as opposed to Rick, I, every candidate I worked for lost, every single one. And at some point you think, ah, maybe I ought to get out of this thing. I'm not, I'm not doing anybody any good. And uh, so I got out of politics. I, I went through political detox. I'm out. I'm clean. So I was a failed political consultant, and I decided to become a novelist. I, I'm, I'm one of the few Jewish people in America that didn't get the financial gene. So that's been a thing. Like, I'm not your accountant. I'm not your stockbroker. I'm not your hedge fund manager. But nor am I your doctor your lawyer, your chiropractor. I don't run a major movie studio. You know, all the good Jewish jobs I did not get. And uh, so I make things up for a living. That's what I do. And I tell my journalist friends, listen, you know, if you want to write fake news, that's fine. I got no problem with writing fake news, but there's a job for that. It's called being a novelist. You just have to own it. You can't <laughs> pretend to be a journalist. Just become a novelist. I, 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 that's what I do. I make things up. And I make things up in these novels you know, the goal is to entertain you and to capture you and pull you in. But I feel so passionately that God has saved me when he didn't have to, that God opened my eyes in 1975, long before many of my other Jewish compadres around the world, that, that God has a mission for me. I, I've got to reach my people with the gospel. I need to make sure that every single Jewish person has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And since I have no other skill sets with which to operate, writing things that are made up is my way. I have to do it. Like God has locked every other door. It's not like I have some genius strategy. Oh, this is how I'm going to do it. No, like I tried to get in that door. Can't do it. 
try to get that door. Okay, this is the way you're going. Okay, I mean, I, you know, my wife has the spiritual gift of discernment. I have the gift of obliviousness. Uh, I, uh, I hear the women laughing. Anyway, there's probably a few other men here with that gift. Uh, they may not own it. They may not even realize they have it, right? Because that's, you know, sort of the point. Right, this comes from uh, the road to Emmaus, right? Jesus says, oh, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe, right? I know for many of you women, that is your life verse. But anyway, um, but so it took me a while to realize that nothing else I was going to do was going to work and that God had this plan. If I would let go of everything else and let him take me down this path, he would open doors. And this, you know, that's so encouraging. I just wish... He could have said at the beginning, you know, you're going to sell 5 million copies. The vice president of the United States is going to read your books. The secretary of state, kings, princes. Okay, I can do that if you tell me that's what's going to happen. But he doesn't say that ahead of time. I don't know why, because it would have been so much more helpful. Um, But I got into writing novels, and my wife and I had met at Syracuse University. We call Syracuse uh, Siberacuse, Zerocuse. No excuse, but I know I'm not going to get any sympathy from you who live in Minneapolis, so uh, cold is, is not a thing for you. But we met in Campus Crusade for Christ, and I remember how terrified we were learning how to share the gospel the, of the four spiritual laws, that little uh, tract, was terrifying to us. But we did it. We learned it. We saw people come to faith. We began to disciple people. But now I use 450-page political thrillers to share the gospel, but uh, I got to kill a lot of people and blow a lot of things up, fictionally speaking, to get you and you know, grab you and pull you in so that you will read the whole thing. That's what I do. But as I began to do that, I was writing about worst case scenarios in the Middle East. And what happened was I would be invited to churches and Christian conferences and among other venues. And people would say, okay, you're writing about worst case scenarios that could happen. But you know, in the Middle East, there's a lot of Worst case scenarios that are happening. How can we invest in the work of the gospel in the Middle East? What, what would you recommend? Where should we give? I didn't have an answer for that. Not because I didn't know any people doing ministry in the Middle East, in Israel and the Arab world, but I didn't know how to, how would you at the end of a sermon or an end of a Q&A session, how would you list all the different options and explain the projects and the leaders and these little tiny ministries I would come home and I would say to my wife, God is using these novels not just to share the gospel, but to encourage, inspire even believers to think, okay, we need to get involved in in, in making sure that everybody in this part of the world has heard the gospel. Even if they say no, they have to at least hear it. How can they believe if they haven't heard? How can they hear unless somebody tells them? And how can somebody tell them unless they're sent? And how can they be sent unless somebody trains, equips, and funds them? I believe that. But people want me to give them a list of of places to invest to get that work done. And I don't know what to tell them. I I can't summarize this fast enough. And that set into motion a lot of prayer. And that set into motion the Lord telling us to start this ministry called the Joshua Fund. And the Joshua Fund really from our angle, from from the team, we are a spiritual venture capital firm. We are identifying ministries in Israel, in the Palestinian territories, and in the five neighboring Arab countries, because there's, there's a point of no return. It's limited resources and limited people, so we can't just reach everybody. God has to take care of that in other ways, but this is the mandate he has given us. And how do we go build relationships 
and vet these various ministries and then know if we're supposed to help them and how we're supposed to help them. Well, that's what the Joshua Fund does. And that's what venture capitalism does, right? You'd, you go out to Silicon Valley, you find some guys in their garage, they'd have some crazy good idea, but they need help. They need support. They need financing. They need marketing assistance. They need whatever, management help. And if you can help them, who knows uh, you know, how far their impact with their little, you know, uh, project that they're developing in their garage could go. This is the same way of what God is doing in the Middle East. And, and, and most major ministries have avoided Israel and the Arab world, generally speaking, because there's not as much fruit there, right? And I'm not being critical. I'm saying if you want fruit, go to China. If you want fruit, go to Brazil. If you want fruit, go to sub-Saharan Africa. That, you know, that's where God is, seems to be bearing the most fruit. But if you go to Israel, you know, you're going to be beating your head against the wall for a long time. If you go to the Muslim world, historically, you're not going to see much fruit, right? If, I, I didn't even put up the CNBC chart on the Muslim world. Like, you know, it's flatlining. But things are changing. Things are changing dramatically. More Jews and more Muslims have come to faith in Jesus Christ since the 1960s than any other time in history. And for Muslims, it's more Muslims have come to faith in Jesus since 1960 than in the last 1,400 years put together. This is extraordinary. And even more importantly, in some ways, than people saying yes to Jesus, is there's so much openness among Jews and Muslims, at least to hear the gospel through satellite television, through gospel radio, through the internet, and through personal conversation. This is exciting. And, and so the Joshua Fund, that's our goal. We're, we're a venture capital firm in that sense. But from a donor side, it's like a mutual fund. You know, from a donor side, they're thinking, I wouldn't even know the first thing about how to, I wouldn't know the ministries. I wouldn't know how to vet them theologically. How are they doing financially? Are they really using the money? And what kind of projects do they want? I mean, I don't know how to do that, right? Well, who does? But that's the same way as with a mutual fund. You're not cherry-picking individual stocks. You're like, I trust this firm to go figure it out. And uh, this is what we're trying to do, trying to be a trusted resource. Now, the reason I'm saying it, I'm not, I'm not making a pitch, actually, to you, although I'm not opposed to you, you know, getting involved in Joshua. I'm, my, I'm trying to explain to you that if I could do th just that, uh, Lynn and I founded this ministry in 2006, I would just do Joshua Fund because this is what I want to do with my life. I want to preach the gospel or at least equip other people who can do it in Hebrew, in Russian, in Arabic, in what, Amharic, in whatever other language. I, I, absolutely, I want to help them fulfill the Great Commission in Israel and in the Arab world. That's, that's my passion. And... The problem I have is the Lord's like, yeah, I don't want you to do that. I'm like, what? what? No, I want you to start this ministry. I wanted you to run it for a number of years. I want you to be the chairman of it. I want you to be recruiting and training and deploying a team to do this. But what I want you to do is be a novelist. But why? <laughs> I say, Lord, there's, this is really exciting ministry to, to be done. And it's, I'm just a kid in a candy store. This is what I want to do. I know, Joel, but I, got, I wanted you to set it in motion. But I want you to be a novelist. Okay, making things up. I know, but this is how, don't you see? How dense are you, Joel? This is how I'm opening doors. This is how people are hearing the gospel. People who are believers who read the books and they give it to their Jewish dentist, chiropractor, lawyer, and of course, anybody else that you know, isn't Jewish, but they need Jesus. This is a great way to share the gospel. Don't you see what I'm doing here? I said, I see it, but I, I want to do this. Yeah, yeah, but okay, but I'm not, uh, bless your heart. You know, <laughs> I want you to do this. Okay. Okay, I told you, gift of obliviousness. So I, this is what I'm doing. And uh, when I come to a day like Yom Kippur, I find myself thinking of Romans chapter 10, right? Brothers, 
my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for who? For Israel, for the Jewish people, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, some of them. Now, agnosticism and atheism is, is rampant uh, within uh, the Jewish world. And if not atheism and agnosticism, then they're looking for all kinds of other spiritual counterfeits. They're not looking to the word of God. They're not looking to the Bible. They're not looking, uh, they don't have a zeal actually for the God of Israel. Many, certainly American Jews, but many Israelis too. The national anthem of Israel is Hatikva, it means the hope. But I joke that the national anthem of the Jewish people ought to be the old country Western song, looking for love in all the wrong places. That's really what we're doing. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. Our head tells us no to the God of Israel because we're deceived, but our soul tells us we need something. There, there must be a God. And so we become Jew-boos, Jewish Buddhists, or we become Jewish Hindus or, or, or witches. I mean, we are spanning the horizon and we have a little inner rabbi that's telling us, anybody but Jesus, don't stay away from Jesus. Jesus is not the answer. Stay away from him. That's a problem. So that's why my passion is to reach them. I testify about them that they have a zeal for something, either God or some counterfeit, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This is the problem. And and yet God has not rejected the Jewish people. That's a big problem within Christendom. Historically, most Jews are not rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know the gospel. What they're rejecting is the history of Christianity. The Crusades, the Inquisition, the Holocaust, the pogroms, they considered all done by Christians. Now you say, well, Hitler was not a Christian. He was an antichrist, little a, little c, fine. But his minions, his henchmen were gassing Jews Monday through Saturday and then going to church and singing Lutheran hymns on Sunday. Tough to convince a Jewish person that, that, that this book isn't an anti-Semitic handbook. That's what we have to do. Get them into the word of God. And then we need to make it clear who Jesus is and let them make their own decision. But it, how can they believe if they haven't heard? So at, on the one hand, uh, post-Holocaust, you've got uh, Christians breaking out into different sectors. Sector A on one end is supersessionism which is saying God is done with the Jewish people. They rejected Jesus. I'm sorry, it's over for them. There is no plan. None of the prophecies, none of the promises that God made have any relevance to them. Supersessionism. That's a problem. Tough to explain to Jewish people who don't know Jesus that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but all your promises that your forefathers blew, yeah, none of that has any effect on you. I mean, you you don't benefit from being a Jew in any way, shape, or form. And God has pretty much rejected you anyway. So why am I even talking to you? That's a range of different people within supersession, but that's a serious problem. On the other hand, at the, at the far end is we love Israel so much, you got hyper-Christian Zionism. And when I say hyper, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with people loving Israel and the Jewish people and wanting to stand with us against Iran and radical Islam, Islamic terrorism and so forth. I love that. But I don't love when people say, and don't worry, we love you, Israel, so much, we won't tell you about Jesus. I got a problem with that because that is, um, that is evidence that at some level, they're, they're so ashamed of the history of Christianity, they become ashamed of the gospel, right? They've got a problem with their Romans 1.16 theology. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. But if you do have a slight shame about the gospel, if you think it really, the Jews don't qualify anymore, then you're going to be ashamed of the gospel. If you think, well, I want to stand with them and support them politically, but I don't want to really get in the whole thing with them about Jesus because that's because people have done it badly. Then you have a there's something that's shameful. You have, a, you have there's some sort of shame you have about the gospel, but it's actually an act of anti-Semitism not to share the gospel with a Jewish person. In fact, it's the ultimate act of anti-Semitism to deny a Jewish person at least the right to hear the case and say yes or no. So the Lord has sort of wired my life in these two sides, uh, the, the, the novels and the Josh Fund. And learning how to balance those has been, been fascinating. I'm not saying it's not fascinating. It's just challenging because often I want to chuck the one and do the other. But God says, no, that's how I'm doing this one because of this one. Okay, so he knows better. I want to share with a few, you a few examples now of some of these doors that he's opening. Now, we, we made Aliyah, that means we moved to Israel and became citizens five years ago. And we, of the four, son, four sons, one of them is married and now is living uh, in the United States, uh, working for a church out in California uh, with his lovely wife. Wife, by the way, Egyptian father and a Syrian mother. So when we taught the boys that the, the mission of the Joshua Fund is to love Israel and her neighbors, we're like, Caleb, you really took that seriously. Wow. You, you're falling in love with a girl from Biola University who's got an Egyptian father and a Syrian mother? Get out, that's awesome. You should have seen the wedding. You know, this Israeli, American, Jewish, evangelical team. You got the Egyptians, you got the Syrians. My wife, her sister married a Lebanese Christian who grew up in Beirut. So we, you know, we practically had the Joshua Fund uh, universe right there. Very, very exciting. Very, very exciting. And, and it's been very challenging living in Israel, but all kinds of doors have been opening. Let me take a few minutes and walk through. I'm going, to, I'm going to actually show you some pictures in a moment from some of these delegations that God has opened. It's not my normal life. Okay? My normal life isn't meeting with kings and crown princes, presidents, and prime ministers. But it has been an exciting uh, new chapter, if you, if you will, in, in the last couple of years. Now, it started because I wrote a series of novels about King Abdullah of Jordan and ISIS, the Islamic State, trying to assassinate him, blow up his palace, and take over his kingdom. Uh, they were trying to do other bad things too, but that's a, that's a major element of this novel series. What happened is he actually read the novel. And one of his advisors uh, saw a copy in an airport, read it, couldn't believe it. I, I name King Abdullah by name. He's an actual character in the book with his wife, with his children, as terrorists are trying to kill them all. It's not the brightest way to do it, but what happened was the advisor read it and brought it to the king and said, your majesty, you have to read this. He said, why? What is it? It's a novel. Okay, but why do I have to read it? Because you're in it. I'm in it. What are you talking about? You're a character in the novel. And as it turns out, the king took two days and his schedule, he didn't have a lot on the schedule at that moment. So he did. He read the novel. And then he sent the advisor to go have lunch with me to see if I was crazy. <laughs> Having become convinced that I am crazy, he sent him back to have dinner with me to see, are, is he dangerous crazy or just eccentric crazy? Uh, I guess eccentric crazy. He's a writer. He's a novelist. Okay. So then Lynn and I get an invitation from the palace to come for five days to Amman, Jordan, 
and spend time with the king and all of his most senior advisors. And over those five days, he basically tried to show us, and, 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 I, and, and, and convincingly, that he, what he was doing to make sure that my novels never come true. Now, when we first had lunch with him, he said, you know, I noticed that you blew up my palace. So I was wondering where I should meet you for the first time, and I thought I ought to bring you to the palace so you could see what a lovely place this is. I said, yes, this is very lovely, and we pray this never happens. He says, now, I also noticed that you made me a character by name, but my senior advisors and my inner circle, they're all fictional names. But I know who they are. I can see who's who. So I buy copies of your book, and I give them to my staff. I say, this is you. You don't make it through the terrorist attack. Here, read that. Hilarious, the guy's hilarious. So I'll get back to the other stories. But anyway, at, at the last night I was there, he invited us to, the, uh, to his private palace for a two and a half hour private dinner with just a few friends of his. And we just got to talk about everything, just everything under the sun. So interesting, off the record. I can't tell you much about that, but it was, it was amazing. Here's a 43rd generation direct descendant of the Islamic prophet Muhammad, a Sunni Muslim Arab monarch, and me, an American, Israeli, Jewish follower of Jesus. Like, uh, you know, this is reminiscent of the, the old Sesame Street song, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> one of these things just doesn't belong, right? I mean, what, what's the chance of that? I, look, I make things up for a living, and I couldn't make that up. That was just unbelievable. Well, I asked him at the end of that night, I said, I have learned so much. I thought I uh, respected you before I came, but I, my, my respect for you has grown so much. Would you be open to, uh, interested in, if, if a group of evangelical leaders from the United States came and spent several days with you, the way we've gotten to do, and learned who you are? Most of them are very pro-Israel, but it's good for them to have a, a healthy, balanced perspective of an Arab monarch who's fighting the radical Islamist bad guys, has a peace treaty with Israel, and this is just interesting. And he said, I would love that. Would you be in charge of setting that up? I said, absolutely, let's work on it together. And so I went home and I started working on that. Now, as it happens, and we're gonna go to the pictures in just a moment, as it happens, a few months later, while we're working on that plan, I got invited in Washington to meet with Egyptian president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. He was meeting with about 60 Middle East experts and I got included. So at the end of that meeting, I had an opportunity to, to meet with him personally and I said, I want to thank you. I, you know, I introduced myself. And I said, I want to thank you, Mr. President, for rescuing 100 million Egyptians from the reign of terror of the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, it's just amazing what you have done in rescuing Egypt from this, uh, this, this tragedy. He said, well, you're welcome. <laughs> I said, and I want to thank you for all that you're doing to protect the Christians of Egypt from the terrorists uh, who have been trying to blow up their churches. You're even rebuilding all of the churches in Egypt at government expense. Thank you for doing that. I know there's a lot more to be done, but thank you. Well, you're welcome, <laughs> he said. And I said, uh, I see that you're meeting with Roman Catholic leaders, Coptic Egyptian Orthodox uh, leaders, uh, Jewish leaders. I don't remember any leader of Egypt ever meeting with uh, a range of faith leaders that weren't Muslims. He said, well, I'm trying to lead Egypt in a new direction. And uh, this is some of the ways we're doing it. And they said, well, I, I noticed, well, I haven't noticed actually that you've, met with any evangelicals. I'm not being critical. Maybe I missed it. But have you met any? He said, no, I don't think that I have. I said, well, I would encourage you to do it. There's about 60 million evangelicals in the United States, about 600 million worldwide, quite influential, uh, in the, certainly in the States and in other countries. And I just think they, we, 
myself included, would, would, are, I'm, I was so fascinated with this conversation. I think other evangelicals would like to meet someone like you. They're not going to agree on everything with you, but, but they're going to be fascinated. I, and I mentioned just briefly what was going on with me and the King of Jordan. Now, it's six minutes into this conversation. There's not a single person in line to have a conversation after me, so we keep going. So he says, Joel, would you like to bring a delegation like that? Now, he has no idea who I am. None. Zero. I'm in the room. Obviously got cleared by the security people, but I said, mm, yes, I would like to do that. <laughs> Don't even need to pray about that. That's already been prayed for. Uh, but I was just shocked. And uh, he, so he, he, we talk about the details for a few moments. Then he turns to his foreign minister, his chief of staff, and his ambassador to the United States at about nine minutes in. And he says, gentlemen, make this thing happen. So we exchange cards, I get on a plane, I fly back to Israel. A few days later, it's Passover. And I'm at the home of the, Israel, of the president of the Israel College of the Bible. That's the Bethlehem College and Seminary of Israel. And, it, uh, and we're talking, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You met with President El-Sisi? What happened and what did he say? And he wants you to come and, and, and bring in evangelical leaders? And like, how did that all happen? I said, guys, this is how crazy it is. Imagine being a Jewish man on the eve of Passover, mind you, and standing before the leader of Egypt and saying, let my people come. <laughs> that is not how the story goes, right? So, so we did the two trips back to back. So this is me and uh, King Abdullah of Jordan. And uh, we spent four days with the team uh, in Jordan. And then we had, as part of this, we had a, a working lunch in the palace uh, with the king, um, on the on flanking on both sides. Well, first of all, is uh, Michelle Bachman. There's a Minnesotan uh, in in the mix there, but on the uh, right side uh, is one of my sons, Jonah. He's in a special forces unit right now in Israel, and on the other side is Jacob, uh, his older brother, who just finished the army uh, in Israel uh, recently. And, and it was an amazing thing. We spent time with Jordanian evangelicals. We spent time with the king. We spent time with his cabinet. In Cairo, we were invited to the palace. Uh, it's a little distant there, but I'm sitting to the left of the, of the president. And we had three hours. We were supposed to have an hour. We had almost three hours with the president, uh, just asking him all kinds of questions and lacing in all kinds of scripture as we set up a question so that he kept hearing scripture. He's a very devout Muslim. And yet uh, we asked him his prayer request. We talked to him about the prophecies of Isaiah 19, where God talks about the future of, of, of Egypt. It was a fascinating discussion. And then he, he wanted to take a picture that would then be released to all the media. Standing next to him is the head of all the Protestants, two million Protestant evangelicals in Egypt. We wanted to make sure that if we're coming, we get invited to meet with the president of Egypt, that we're not going around the local Christians. We're here to strengthen them, to support them. In fact, we spent time with about 60 evangelical Egyptian leaders, pastors and ministry leaders, heads of seminaries, without any government people being involved. Andrea Zaki, the head of the Protestant evangelicals, was the one that arranged all that. And we wanted him to be in the meeting, and he was. And the protocol people put him right next to uh, President El-Sisi. And when they released that photo, it was on the cover of every newspaper in Egypt. And the Egyptian Christians, uh, the, the, the Protestants, uh, had never gotten that level of respect. And it has gone, it's become an ongoing relationship. I was invited to come back up to, uh, well, go up to New York, and a small group of evangelical Christians had the opportunity to have a, a small roundtable discussion with President El-Sisi. That was my fourth meeting with him. And that is not even including the time in January 
when Dr. Tomlinson and Rick Siegel came with me and with another group. And why was that? Because the president LCC wanted us to be there for the opening of the largest church ever built in the Middle East, which he was gifting to the Christians of Egypt, a Muslim leader of the world's largest Arab Muslim country, building the largest church in the history of the Middle East and giving it to Christians on, the, on Christmas Eve. I mean, that's like a fictional storyline, except that it was really happening. Now, I am not saying that life is rosy for the Christians of Egypt or Jordan. There are many, many challenges. But this was the first time that Egypt had ever asked evangelical Christians to come and build a relationship with their leadership. And so we did that. And we are continuing, as I say, that dialogue and discussion, and not just with the president, but with many of his senior advisors. Um, We had an opportunity, as I say, to pray uh, each time with the president. Okay, let's go to the next picture. Thank you for listening to this episode and learning about how God is opening whole nations and the hearts of kings and princes to the gospel. If you found this podcast valuable, please get in touch with us. Let us know who you are. Do you have a prayer request for us? Do you want to talk about something else on this show? Or do you have a question you want Joel to answer? You can go to joshuafund.com and click on Contact Us. Your feedback is incredibly important as we develop this podcast. And as always, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on the podcast that you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg and the Joshua Fund Ministry Team, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. Hey everybody, I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. We're hosts of the Kainos Project podcast. Where we help you tackle ancient Christian truths in everyday settings. To learn more and subscribe, go to lifeaudio.com.